Grace, peace, and mercy be upon you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ on this second Sunday of Lent. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for bringing around this season of Lent again for us as we follow you to the cross and meditate on your word. Be with us today and help us to hear and inwardly digest and take it in what you have to say to us. We thank you for bringing us here and watch over those who could not make it today. In your name we pray, amen. My mom took me to the theater for my first big motion picture experience when I was six years old. I remember almost everything about it. And ever since then, I've been a fan of the movies like many of you. When you're a movie fan, there are films you can watch over and over again and never get tired of. And then there are some that you've seen once and never want to see again. And I'm not talking about, you know, cheap films or bad films. I mean films that may be of very high quality, Oscar winners even, but their content and its effects on you is why you never want to watch them again. The two movies at the top of my list that I've seen and never want to see again is Schindler's List from 1993 and Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ from 2004. Jill and, Jill and I went and saw The Passion of the Christ with a church group in Missouri. It was a church outing. <laughs> oh, let's go see this new movie about Jesus. Everyone's talking about it. Yeah, everyone's talking about it. Everyone saying that it's the, some were saying it's the best thing they'd ever seen. Some were saying it was too graphic. Others said it was too emotionally draining than spiritually uplifting. No doubt the film was impactful, and now that it's on home video, uh, some churches show it as a regular event, uh, especially during Lent. At the time of the film's release, Roger Ebert, you remember Roger Ebert, right? don't you, from Siskel and Ebert, right? You know, Ebert, who had probably seen every movie ever made up to that point, said it was the most violent film he'd ever seen. But as a former altar boy, he was also struck by the fact that for the first time in his life, he was provided with an idea of the suffering of Christ that related to deep inward feelings rather than just having knowledge of it. People seemed to be stunned by the graphic depiction of Christ's torture before and on the cross. Yet it is portraying the staggering price Jesus paid to redeem us from sin. The Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Christians in Rome, not many years after it happened, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He also writes in the verses we have for today, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's a striking thing for him to say. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the essence of the Christian faith. But do we really get it? Have we been provided with an idea of the suffering of Christ that relates to deep inward feelings rather than just having knowledge of it? Has the message of Christ dying for us been repeated so often it's become a formula we hear and nod absentmindedly or nod off altogether. I mean, some have. 
sin and our sinful nature are all behind indifference and apathy towards Christ's suffering, dying, and rising. But, thankfully, God's word is more powerful than those enemies. And it is, it is, in his word today, Paul shows us more than we can grasp. That Christ dying for the ungodly is a profound reality. We probably forget how much we needed Jesus to do this for us because we, we don't even want to hear or understand how ungodly we were. Now, we've already heard what Peter's response was to Jesus' mission claim. Notice Mark doesn't say what, Jesus, what Peter said, but obviously it was something that warranted Jesus' rebuke to Peter. So, you know, we, we can gather that Peter wanted nothing to do with Jesus' mission to die and be raised again. The very idea, you know, you can imagine him saying, the very idea, Jesus, that you would die, that's not necessary. Peter didn't get it. Maybe he hadn't been taught enough about sin yet. You know, indeed, there's been a whole dismantling of sin in our society, and it's no wonder churches struggle to grow and shut their doors for good. Because when there's no sin, there's no need for Jesus. Who needs him, right? As the years go on, people's views as to what human behaviors are wrong become narrower. Oh, sure, murder is still a crime. Screwing people out of their money is still a crime, still illegal. And let's not forget the last bastion of sexual immorality. You can't have your way with children or it's jail time. That one still remains. But, you know, if our culture continues down its current trajectory, who knows how long that one will remain in effect. We are seeing some interesting resistance to the way things are going, however, and not just from Christians. You know, there's pockets and groups of people that are, the, the silent majority are, not, are, are becoming more vocal, in other words, and there always seems to be some hope in turning things around through a president or a governor or a political party's values. Slogans and politicians come and go, though. What's certain is the word of God. Through his servant Paul, God writes to us, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Well, there certainly seems to be lots of ungodly people around who haven't heard of Jesus yet and might benefit from being turned around. But notice, Paul is writing to Christians, people like us, who were at one time opposed to God. And we mustn't overlook the word we when he says, we were still weak. He includes himself in there, too. Maybe the world is right on all these social issues. Everyone should do what they feel is right and good in their hearts. Sin will still be there, though. Murder will still happen. Abuse will still happen. People of all ages will still be treated badly and have things done to them that they don't want have done. Look inside. You don't even have to look too deep. This thought or that thought, you wouldn't dare want anyone to know. We have secret pacts with ourselves. But Christ dying for the ungodly is profound because his death is far beyond anything we can comprehend, and it's effectual. It actually does something for us, to us. 
About this, Paul says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This breaks down the whole popular image that only good people are church people. You know, only a good person can step into a church. You've probably heard the joke or people joke that if, oh, if I stepped into church, I'd probably get hit by a bolt of lightning. I've heard that. Yeah. And they may not really be joking. They might actually believe that. And that's sad because a church, the church, is for the ungodly. If we read Paul correctly, and I believe we are. And think about this too. It was Jesus who died for us the ungodly, the sinless Son of God. He needs nothing from anyone, but he makes us perfect nevertheless because he wants to be with us, the people he made. He has loved us from eternity. Sad that he's the one people ignore. Sad that he's the one people try to hide or get off their backs because they don't believe or avoid considering the implications of not having faith in him. What kind of reaction does the suffering and death of Christ for the ungodly get from your boss or from your teacher or from your friends or even from those in your family who love you? Yeah, a rhetorical question, something to think about. I don't know the answer. Nevertheless, Christ is your substitute for death. True everlasting death, I mean. Christ took that death from you and applied it to himself. He carried all your sin, even your sicknesses and your diseases, as we heard this last Wednesday. That, coupled with his resurrection from death, not only ensures victory over sin, the devil and death, but it forgives and gives you life and everlasting righteousness and blessedness. Those are now yours through faith in him. A faith he gives to you. Ponder that. We can ponder it. Can we fully grasp it? Christ dying for the ungodly is profound because it creates a new relationship that we don't fully appreciate. The suffering and death of Christ was all to reestablish that broken relationship with God the Father and people. The Father would condemn us for our sins, but relents. He holds back from doing it because of his sons substituting himself donating himself for us to take our sin from us and put it on himself. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, enables us to have sorrow for our ungodliness and gives us the tools to repent, such as confession, the church, pastors to hear your confession and receive the words of absolution, that God forgives you. About this, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation. You know, that's a word we don't consider much today as we once did. Because when's the last time you reconciled your checkbook? Hmm? 
I mean, I don't think I've done that in 20 years. I mean, maybe some of you still do. But first of all, we don't write as many checks as we used to, and everything's automated now. But remember, we used to sit down with our monthly bank statements and compare each transaction with what we wrote down in our check register and did the math and made sure everything added up to the penny. We were making our bank's view of our money compatible with our view. But those were just numbers. With people, compatibility brings friendly relations. Reconciliation with God is being restored to friendly relations with our Heavenly Father. Do we always fully appreciate this restored relationship when Christ died for the ungodly? Probably not. But Christ dying for the ungodly is profound because it enables us to rejoice in, in something we do that we do understand all too well, and that is suffering. Tribulations, trials, you know, we don't need to look into ourselves for these. The world dumps them on us without our permission. Stress, sick and dying relatives and friends, kids have left in a huff, slammed doors, you know, a, a lonely apartment, a dead-end job. No job. It, it never ends. Yet those words from Paul ring true. We rejoice in our sufferings. Sounds like Christian hype, but it's real hope. We rejoice in our sufferings, not that we're happy about it or throw a big party over it, although that would be interesting if one were to do that. How would that change one's outlook on things? What Paul is saying is suffering produces endurance, character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. Hope floats out of our dependence on God's love, mercy, and compassion for us. And this hope sustains us in bad times because its object is the glory of God, regardless of our circumstances. And it's not Christian hype because, as we have seen, Christ died for the ungodly. He loves us that much. And since his death has reconciled us to God the Father, it's a certainty that he will be with us even in these most difficult times or the most difficult times in your life. That's how we can rejoice. If you want to throw a party over it, be my guest. I won't tell you otherwise. Just make sure you invite me and Jill and the boys. People are still stunned when they watch Mel Gibson's movie about Jesus because it so graphically depicts the suffering of Christ. And perhaps people are stunned by the staggering price Jesus paid to save us as well. It is profound. It's a profound thing to be ungodly and yet undeservedly saved and made godly by the one who made you. To be his for eternity because Christ died for you, for me, that's far-reaching, even life-changing. May it be so for you. Amen. And may the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.